Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Nathan Worley. And I'm Isabella Davis. Today we're speaking with Matt Pikin, a television writer and producer from Southern California. After graduating from Claremont McKenna College in 1983, Matt moved to Washington, D.C. to begin what he thought would be a long career as a political consultant, White House speechwriter, and campaign manager. He soon returned to Los Angeles to co-found a software company where he co-created the hit video games, National Lampoon's Blind Date and Fox Hunt. And after adapting the latter into a television pilot, Matt then began a 30-year career in television as a writer and executive producer on a wide range of TV dramas. From the groundbreaking Queer as Folk, the Emmy-winning Fox hit Empire, to the critically acclaimed Golden Globe-winning Mr. Robot, for which he also won the Writers Guild Award in 2016. This wide range of experience offers a picture of the CMC way, which is the topic of his, conversa- of his conversation with another alum, Dato Deve, tonight at the Athenaeum. So thank you so much for joining us today, Matt. Um, I'd like to start our conversation by uh, hearing about your start right here at Claremont McKenna College. Um, so you graduated in 1983. Um, I, I remember seeing um, a while back, uh, Reagan came and gave a speech at Claremont McKenna College in October of 1980. So just about a month before um, um, the election day of, of 1980. Um, I was wondering if you had like any memory of that, like what was the atmosphere like on campus at that time, socially, politically, just some thoughts on that. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Also, I don't know who that guy was that you were describing. <laughs> said, my, my, when it's written, it sounds like a million times better than my life, right? <laughs> to, to go to your question, 1980, Ronald Reagan, who was referred to at the time as governor because he had, was governor of California in the 70s, was running. And I was an intern on that campaign. So Professor Balitzer and Professor Heslop, who ran the Rose Institute, were speechwriters and uh, political advisors to Ronald Reagan. And so he wanted to speak in Southern California. And they said, how about coming to Claremont McKenna? And which, it, now this place was so conservative compared mm-hmm. to how it is now. Now I would consider it sort of like a, a moderate to liberal institution. Yeah. Back then it was like very right wing. I was a Democrat, but I was interning on, the, on a Republican campaign. And that was not unusual at the time. But... There was a funny incident that occurred Mm -hmm. um, when Reagan came to speak. So they brought Reagan in and I was sort of there to uh, they had me dealing with all the students. So I was going to get everybody rounded up and make sure everybody came to the speech. And it was right out in front of Bauer. And I came back about three, four hours before. And one of my roommates goes, oh, you're going to get it. (laughs) And I said, please, Dave. And I won't say Dave's last name. Dave Ossinger. I said, please, Dave, don't do anything bad. This is like my internship. I need an A. He's like, oh, don't worry. We got it handled. So about three weeks before Reagan came to speak here, he made a very big gaffe where where they were talking about uh, pollution in Southern California, air pollution. And he said, well, it's been here forever. The trees cause air pollution. Reagan said this. And people are like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Well, it was taken out of context. And there was a little bit of haze that sometimes is, is caused by a natural effect in Southern California, but certainly not smog. Mm. But it made Reagan look dumb that he was saying trees cause air pollution. 
So the day comes, we get everybody here. I got all the students out, you know, outside of Bauer. It's a huge turnout because this guy's going to, by the way, Reagan, you guys are way, way before you're born, but he was miles ahead. And in fact, he won 49 of the 50 states. Wow. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, Car- yeah, it might have been 49 states. Carter got destroyed. Mm-hmm. Carter was the incumbent president at the time, but Reagan just was going to sweep to victory and easily would win California and the rest of the states. So we have this huge turnout. Reagan comes. He goes to give this speech, and I'm standing behind Reagan, and I look out across the quad, and there in this giant oak tree is my roommate, Dave. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And I'm like, oh, no. He doing in the tree now. Normally, I'm we'll get, first. I'm, I'm getting a little worried because the Secret Service is there, and I'm like, there's not supposed to be people in the trees. Mm-hmm. What if they have weapons or whatever? Well, that's not why Dave was in the tree. And I look up, and he's got a big banner, and he and another guy unfurl this banner right in front of the oak tree. And as if the oak tree is talking, it's the banner says, "Stop me before I kill again." Oh my god! <laughs> and the everybody whooshed over. They immediately, the L.A. Times, that was the cover of the L.A. Times, was oh how the Claremont students nailed Ronald Reagan. So the whole day goes by. Everything gets finished. I walk back a little dejected. I'm like, oh, did you guys have to do that? Admittedly, it was funny. They're like, whatever. We got a case of beer. We're going to sit on Green Beach and drink. And so we did. And that's, to kind of put an end to the story, it was a little bit different back then. Even if you were on the opposite sides of things, at the end of the day, you had a beer and hung out on Green Beach. And I feel like it's not like that anymore. Mm-hmm. Maybe for good reason, but certainly uh, it's a different world. Well, that's definitely a, a great story that um, really shines more of a light on it that um, I don't think was – I don't remember exactly, but I don't I don't remember, like, the whole side of it being, being covered in L.A. Times. Uh, it was really just, like, what I saw was, like, the tree instant and all that. Oh, Claremont. you knew about the tree instant. Yeah, yeah. Um, but kind of stemming from that as well, um, obviously this seems like, um, your Reagan internship was a great experience you had, um, as part of, of CMC, like being here. Um, I, I just want to ask like what other experiences at CMC maybe helped prepare you for your future in, in politics or in entertainment? Um, well, entertainment, entertainment was not even in my mind at all when I was here. I did, had no idea what I'd end up doing it. But whenever I talk to my roommates, sweet mates, friends from school, we all look back and say, what did CMC, what did you get from CMC that you use in your life? And almost every single person said, CMC taught me to write. Hmm. Written expression. So, you know, there was no email back then. Nobody had a computer. Well, one guy did, but it was like the only one on (laughs) campus. Um, And we typed on typewriters. But we learned in almost every class to express ourselves on the page. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is invaluable when you get out in the world. I think even more so now. So I, one of the guys I, I lived with became chairman of United Healthcare, Mike Turpin, who's now retired and lives in Connecticut. Great dude, baseball player, funny guy, super personable, but made it in the corporate world because he was able to express himself in a, in a, in a succinct, smart uh, way in writing. And that was the difference. So after you graduated from CMC, we understand that you had a pretty 
one career in politics in DC, but then you moved to working on video games and then entertainment. So how did you go through all these different pivots? Like, what was the thought process when you changed career paths? See, this is this is a good question because this is what I'm going to do in this series of where I interview these alums. So to me, that's what's interesting is like, how'd you get here, right? Like, okay, here's a guy who's supposed to be this econ lit major and a lawyer, and how did he end up writing TV shows mm -hmm. or video games? Mm -hmm. So yes, I was in politics, I was writing speeches, and then I went to work as a campaign manager, and I was uh, working for a guy in South Dakota who was running for the uh, U.S. Senate a guy named Dale Bell. He was a terrible candidate and an even worse guy. Um, and I was asleep in a hotel room in, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and I woke up in the middle of the night and I said, what am I doing working for this guy? He's awful. Mm -hmm. and, and then I started to calculate, and I'm like, I'm making nine cents an hour. Like I was, like I worked, oh I was working like 100 hours a week, and I wasn't getting paid very much, but I loved politics. I really did. But then once I got inside and kind of saw how the sausage was made, I was like, Oh, wow, this is like, it's so disheartening. And I remember I pretty much the next day just said, this isn't for me. And I said, I'll stick around until you find a new campaign manager. And he said, well, get me through my primary. I said, okay, great. I did. He won the primary. And then I left. And I came back to Southern California with not a clue what I was going to do. And luckily from meeting some other friends from CMC and some other people, I ended up in the entertainment business, but that's a different story for probably another day. <laughs> and going off that as well, um, um, sort of how did your political experience end up shaping your writing when you ended up coming back to L.A. and writing for the um, the video game that um, Fox Hunt that you ended up turning into a pilot? Like, did yeah. your political writing shape that in any way? Well, it, it, it teaches you to write quickly. And it teaches you to be focused. So you're writing a script, you know, you're writing a, a, a TV script or a movie script. Characters are essentially giving speeches, mm -hmm. right? So you're, you're putting words in somebody else's mouth. So you have to take into account how would they talk? What feels natural to them? I mean, we've all seen people give speeches and you're like, oh, that's so written. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you see somebody and you see somebody like Barack Obama or they're just naturals at being able mm -hmm. to take the written word and make it their own because they have a very distinct cadence. Or they're just really easy. They're they're good communicators, right? Reagan was amazing at it. Bill Clinton was good. Uh, George W. Bush not so much. Um, Obama amazing. I'd say Biden not so great. Um, but yeah, I learned to write in the voice of other people, and that's the key to television. Because when you go work on a show, you got to be able to replicate the voice that's been created by the the showrunner or creator of that show. So. With writing for TV, is there, do you think there's some sort of responsibility to have maybe an underlying political commentary or talk about issues that are topical? Do you think there's a responsibility as a writer to kind of incorporate those themes? Or do you think TV should be seen as something that's just pure entertainment? You turn off your brain at the end of the day and you binge watch a show. Where do you fall like in those sort of conflicting camps? Well, the good question, and I think it depends on the show you're watching, right? Mm. Some some shows I've worked on, like I worked on the show Empire, mm -hmm. which is a story of a African American family that uh, are music all musicians, singers, rappers, and they become huge um, entertainment moguls, right? Were there people that made social commentary on that show? Yeah, my view was it was fun. 
It was it was there to one to take a peek into another world that maybe you don't know that much about, and also to see these amazingly interesting characters do crazy shit. Can I? Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> no, you're fine. So what I'm saying is, yeah, no, I I, I don't think. I don't think that's necessarily the writer's responsibility mm -hmm. unless that's the goal of the show. Mm -hmm. Right? So if you it, so if you create a show that's yours, maybe yeah, maybe you would say I want to I want to make it more of a social commentary. But for me, I think it it's entertainment first, mm -hmm. commentary second. Have you noticed sort of a shift in the way people write or produce TV shows now that streaming platforms are sort of the norm? Do you think that there's been a shift behind the scenes or just in the way that things, you know, because now it's more about binge watching shows all in one go rather than waiting a week for the next episode to come sure. out. Sure. So binge worthiness is like mm -hmm. a cool thing, especially if you're doing almost everything is bingeable. Almost. So HBO Max kind of still rolls stuff out week by week. Mm -hmm. So you might have to wait for Euphoria another week. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think. I think when you. When you look at the kind of the pantheon of the TV business, now might be that is very close to peak TV. Mm -hmm. So there's six, five or six hundred shows between all the streaming services and the networks and cable channels. Whereas when I started, there were 80. Yeah. So there's so much more to look at, right? So there's stuff that's amazingly great and there's stuff that's trash. But at least there's there's more to look at as a viewer, and there's way more points of view. So where it used to be kind of like, you know, the middle-aged white guy writing stuff, now it's everybody. Mm -hmm. So it's everything from, you know, African-American, Latino, Asian to LGBTQ to, uh, you know, all these points of views are represented on these shows. And now the, all those people are in the writer's room. Mm -hmm. So the more you put that, you make that soup with all different people, the, I think the better stuff you get. Just because you're seeing more points of view. And going off that a bit as well, um, you have, um, you, you said that you're basically credited as bringing the Western writing room style to India. Mm -hmm. um, so something I wanted to ask about is, um, what was that experience like? Like, how did you get into that? Um, I know like Data Dalve, um, He's, uh, I think, co-founder of the largest, um, basically, like, writer's agency in Mumbai. Um, so could you just give me some thoughts on, like, how you got into that um, and your relation with uh, Data Dave as well? Sure. So Data is about 20 years younger than I am. He came to me in the early 2000s and said he wanted to start a talent agency in India. I said, fantastic. I, I don't know how I can help you because, you know, I'm represented by a talent agency here in Hollywood. And at the time... There was really no international TV business because there were no streamers. It was networks and cable like it is in every other country. And kind of what you saw in America is what you saw. And what you saw in England is what you saw. Occasionally, there'd be a foreign show. Now we can watch everything from everywhere, mm -hmm. right? So he hit it at just the right time. Um, about five years ago, he called me and said, hey, would you be willing to oversee a Netflix show that we're going to do in India? And I said... If I have time, I'll do it. So I, he said, it's based on a book. He sent me the book, and the book was brilliant. It was called Layla. And it's basically uh, sort of an Indian version of Handmaid's Tale. Mm -hmm. It's about a mother, uh, a, a Hindu woman married to a Muslim man. And in future India, mixed marriages are outlawed. 
You're not even allowed to be together. And in fact, they essentially put you in a re-education camp or a concentration camp if you are part of those. So they take this middle class or upper, upper middle class woman who's mostly caring about doing her nails and where her latest outfit came from. And she becomes a maid inside mm -hmm. of somebody's house. Mm -hmm. They take away her young daughter and her husband is gone. And she has to find the kid. And that is like a universally gripping story. Mm -hmm. um, but they just didn't know how to do it in India like we do it here. The reason is India is a movie-centric country. Mm -hmm. they, and when they do do TV, they do it very quickly and on the cheap. But the people are super talented. It's just their systems weren't conducive to making high-quality Western-style television. Except they've all been watching it just like we have because they got the internet like we do. So instead of hiring the 40s and 50-year-old people, I hired the 20-somethings who were raised on Breaking Bad and mm. Mad Men and, and you know, uh, European and American-style television. So the idea was put them all together in a room and teach them the way we do it, but also incorporate all the good ideas they have about their own country and society. Mm. And so that's what we did. And it, to varying degrees, it worked. <laughs> so where do you think the global entertainment market is heading then? Um, if um, markets such as India are now having um, sort of a larger influence on uh, the global media-like platform, um, do you think it's going to shift away from Hollywood as being sort of the center of, of media? That's a great boy. If I knew the answer, I'd, I'd, I'd know which stocks to buy, right? Um, I think we really need – so Game of Thrones is is done by Hollywood guys but was shot in England. But you need essentially that to happen uh, coming from an, an India uh, or an emerging country like that or a Mexico before – you need that monster hit, I think. And they're really hard to come by because – the market's so fragmented now. We used to all watch the same things on TV. Now, you might talk to a friend and they'll name four shows and you're like, I haven't heard of any. <laughs> or you ask people for recommendations and they're like, have you watched, have you watched Hacks? Mm -hmm. Have you watched uh, the other two? Like there, for example, there's two shows I think are brilliant and hilarious and half the people I know have never heard of either. Um, so I guess the bigger answer is yes, the rest of the world is, is starting to focus their creativity on the small screen. And TV has certainly eclipsed movies, especially mm -hmm. since the pandemic, now that really so almost killed the movie theater. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not any big statement to say TV is probably the best of all the media, right, in terms of quality now. Because mm -hmm. um, movies are just blockbusters, right? Like, if, if do you really want to watch, like, how many times as an adult, or at least I'm speaking for me, can you watch... Um, a superhero movie. Yeah. <laughs> like it's fine, but like what about real stuff that talks about real people's experiences or hilarious comedies or things that are just smaller shows like Dave. I don't know if you guys watched Dave. Mm -hmm. um, it's about a white boy rapper who wants to be a star living in LA with his friends, right? Doesn't sound like much of a show, but neither did the show where somebody went in and said it's a show about nothing when it was Seinfeld. Yeah. So, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, I think it's out there for, for us to... Uh, for, for other countries to sort of try to replicate our long-term success, oh, it's coming for sure. 
I guess I'm curious, do you have a project that you worked on in the past that was your favorite, maybe because it was really challenging and sort of stretched your abilities with writing and producing? You know, it's funny. It's like uh, you guys would think of it. It's When you work in TV show, it's still a job. So yeah. you have to go every day. So the actors even if they're famous, are people you know from work, right? <laughs> and sometimes like those people, right? Yeah. Yeah, they're yeah. co-workers. So if you work at Starbucks and you're a barista and there's people that you go on your shift, you're like, mm -hmm. oh, that guy, I hate that guy. Yeah. <laughs> or he's lazy or he doesn't do anything. Or I love her. She's brilliant and she's funny and she's really good. So it's exactly that. Um, so when you ask me like what a favorite would be, it's always like where I like the people the best. Mm. So that would have been a show called Las Vegas, which was on about five, for five seasons. Uh, Jimmy Kahn, Josh Dumel, um, a bunch of like young stars at the time. And those people became my friends from work. So I would see them after or, and oddly we would tend to go to Las Vegas together. Yeah. <laughs> Even though we shot it in LA, we'd actually go to the real Vegas on the weekend. Um, but those people were great because they were nice. They were good coworkers. They were friendly. Um, they were collaborative and, um, well, we made a lot of money and had a lot of fun. Like, you can't beat that. Um, but as far as quality, no, it certainly wasn't the best. The number, you know, I've worked on shows that people would consider much more highbrow, but they weren't as fun. Sort of shifting back to CMC now, we, we went all the way to D.C., Hollywood, India, and now back here to beautiful Claremont, California. Um, we touched upon this a bit earlier, but... Um, the the title of your conversation tonight with uh, Dr. Dave, um, the CMC way. What exactly is the CMC way? And is it the same for everyone? Well, that's a great question. So I'll let you in on this. I needed a good pithy title. So to me, the CMC way sounded like mysterious and really good. It right? sounds great. Yeah. Like it does. So the truth is, I think we're going to find out what that is. Mm. To me, a lot of it is what we talked about earlier, where it's like, just being able to express yourself on the page, like learning to write, having a support system that keeps you confident in a place that's smaller, right? So you're not lost at like a, like I remember I, I was thinking of going to UCLA when before I came here and I was like, oh my God, I, I would never, like what would I have done there? Mm -hmm. Maybe you find your people, maybe you don't. But like here, it just always felt like the institution supported your dreams a little bit. Mm -hmm. So like for me, the CMC way is, is that entrepreneurial spirit, right? It's not bad to, to take courses, then go to grad school and be set up, right? But being a little more outgoing, being a little bit more confident, um, kind of going after what you set your sights on, that feels very CMC to me. And I, it kind of comes, I think, a little from that, the experience of the of the 60s, 70s, and 80s when when it was mostly guys here. Uh, although when I, I first came in, the first class of women graduated my freshman year. Oh, wow. Um, which was great because it civilized this place a lot. Um, <laughs> but because it was crazy. But, but the idea is that all these people sort of had that old-timey American spirit, which was like, we've lost a little bit, which was like, I'm not afraid of anything. I'm going to go out. I'm not going to be afraid to fail. And I'm going to do things by my own lights and live on my own terms. Mm -hmm. And in a weird way, that always seemed like the best thing about CMC to me. It sometimes comes off as like bro-y and arrogant, but there's a way to not do it bro-y mm -hmm. and arrogant. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. And the other five colleges, they know. Like, they know when you're a CMC or first of all. They can always say. But, <laughs> I can right? attest to that, yeah. <laughs> but, but also, there's something about, you know, just not you, – CMCers to, were always looked at sort of like socially as conformists a bit. You know, like, oh, that's – that dude's got his lax stick and he's wearing mm. the same shorts. But I think there was a little bit underneath that that exterior, there was a little bit of um, free spirit mm. to us. And and I think I, it's still here. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, I mean, you guys are so much younger and there's so much more to do. Like, look at this. We're on the Internet. We're podcasting, <laughs> right? I mean, who would even thunk it 10 years ago um, or 15 years ago? But, yes, I think – the CMC way is sort of an, an evolving organism almost of what, that we sort of are part of, mm-hmm. right? And so some of the fun of these interviews, I think, is going to kind of tease out what that is. Did that make any sense? Yeah, it, it, it totally <laughs> did. And, um, uh, you know, just before this, I, I had the privilege of sitting down with a Congressman David Dreyer, who oh, sure. uh, is a CMC grad as well. He is. And he, he told us, he was like... Um, you know, they, they told me, if you want to go into politics, run for something like a city council, um, mayor, something like that, something more local. But he just went straight to Congress. And from there, he said he had in mind that he wanted to chair the House Rules Committee. And he ended up doing that. And I think that kind of shows in a way the, um, I don't know, maybe this is very CMC biased, I guess. <laughs> but um, the, I guess, like commitment to like what you set your mind to do. Um, I think I see a lot of that here. And yeah. um, from that as well, um, I, I, I wonder, you, you mentioned like an entrepreneurial uh, spirit at CMC. Did you see that same thing in, in Dr. Dave when he approached you? A hundred percent. When I saw him come to me and say, well, I want to do this, but I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm coming to you because you're in this business. And had he, here's the thing. Had he come to me but we had gone to say institution X with 40,000 students. Mm-hmm. I would not have felt the kinship with him that I felt mm-hmm. when it's a CMC. Cause we know all of us had basically the same experience. Where'd you live? Oh, I lived in green or I lived in Benson. It's like, Oh, I know I've been to a million parties. There. <laughs> you know, every little you do, you have touchdowns with mm-hmm. people like that. And that's why I think CMCers have, have this, really strong network that we can access but it also points to i think something that you were kind of hunting for which is how do we use that how do we right sometimes we need it just for somebody to go dude i don't know what it is you're doing but i'll help you if i can Mm -hmm. and keep going like don't be afraid do it like i remember him walking out and i'm like i did not know how this kid's gonna do this but i know he's not gonna quit yeah like he just had that he had that endurance and that kind of like the gleam in his eye, like, this is what I'm doing. And that seems very CMZ to me. So for our last question, we usually like to ask our guests sort of if they have any sort of advice that they would give current CMC or 5C students about maybe they're unsure about what path they want to take in their lives. Um, any advice that you have for current students? Hmm. Oh my God, that's how can I how can I be profound in the next four? Here's the answer. The answer is I'm still I always am looking for it. I don't have there's no like one way for of course for anybody, right? I felt in my life that there were always sort of 
two divergent paths. One is a very linear path, which is I'm going to delay my fun and gratification, and I'm going to study very hard, and I'm going to do these things, and at the end I will be rewarded. And what I mean by that is, okay, I've come to CMC. I know I want to be a doctor. Mm. I study, I study, I study, I study a lot more than some other liberal arts kids or just kids in general. I may not play a sport. I'm working on the weekends. I'm always at Honold. I'm studying all the time. I take my MCATs. I study some more. I get into a great med school. I do all that. I finish med school and I am a doctor, right? So what's happened is I've used, I've, I've, I've put my nose to the grindstone. I've focused, but I don't have any fear of ambiguity because there isn't any. If I do this, I will be this. Now, there's the other group, which I fall into, which is you probably didn't know exactly what you wanted to do. You didn't follow a path. You worked hard, maybe not quite as hard as the people who were on the path. But what happened is because you have no path, there's a lot of anxiety in that what's going to happen to me? Because a million things can happen to you. Sure, a million things can happen to you when you're a doctor too. But mostly you're a doctor. What kind of doctor are you going to be? I don't know. Oh, wow, I thought I was going to be a, an anesthesiologist and I ended up as a cardiologist. Mm. Okay. You know what I mean? Not that far-fetched. But here's a guy who was an econ accounting major who ended up running a, starting a talent agency in India. That's got to be anxiety-inducing, right? Just because it's like, holy smoke, how do you get there? Mm. There is no path. So for me, it's identifying kind of like the traits that you need to have, which are, I think are positivity, kind of confidence, um, the, the willingness never to quit, right? Even when it's stupid that you continue to do what you're doing, like in the face of like long odds. And also just sort of take the things you get from here. Community, the ability to write, the ability to focus, um, the, the friendships that you make here and use those in some way to come out the other side. And so that's what we're hoping to find out. Well, that's really great advice. And I'm sure all the students listening to this will be very appreciative. Um, unfortunately, I believe that's all the time we have for today. Uh, Matt Pikin, thank you so much for joining us. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry. Stay hungry.